So um, I grew up in a suburb of New York City on the East Coast, a um, town called Bedford Hills, New York. And um, I was an only child. My parents did not get along and there was a lot of tension and sort of arguing, I think, in my household. I was very young, so I don't remember a lot of that. But um, so it was kind of a tough childhood, I'd say, in some ways. I, was, I just felt kind of alone just being an only child. And um, yeah, I just ended up kind of in my own head a lot of the time. I don't remember a lot of it, honestly. My parents divorced when I was about six and um, lived with my mom after that. And we moved around a lot. My mom struggled with alcohol addiction, so I'm not sure how much that played a part in it. She also had some some mental health struggles too, I think. And but we, yeah, it wasn't the most stable uh, childhood, so we moved around a lot. She got sober. She got you know in, into the AA program when I was about like sixth grade, and after that, my life it just everything it was like the the sun came out. You know, it was like everything felt much easier. I was really struggling before that in school and just in life. That was a real turning point for me. And that's when I got into music, actually. Um, I started playing the guitar when I was about 11 and played the cello in the school orchestra. Um, and that was just a godsend for me. That was just, I don't know, I just enjoyed it so much and I made new friends and I actually started a band within a year. I had a band when I was 12 years old. We were all like, <laughs> like 11, 12, 13 year olds in this like rock band playing classic rock songs. So I grew up kind of, I'd say like middle class or lower middle class even really. But my great grandfather was wealthy and he set up, he died when I was about maybe two or three years old, but he knew I existed. So he set up a trust fund for my education. So even though basically I was kind of lower middle class, I had this trust fund for my education. So when I turned 13, you know, my great uncle, who was kind of in charge, was the patriarch of the family and kind of in charge of everything, was like, well, it's time to send Richard to boarding school. So I went to the like fancy boarding schools from eighth grade on through high school. So my socioeconomically, my experience was odd because, you know, most of my friends were from wealthy families, friends in school and stuff. And then, but at home, like I didn't want to invite them home to see my little crappy apartment or whatever you know so it was just interesting so i i've never been sure where i fit in like on that spectrum so i went to college and then after college <laughs> i really had no idea no idea what i wanted to do i mean all i knew is i liked music i was a music major in college but i didn't really have any self-promotion skills or i'm not very entrepreneurial i did had no idea kind of no idea what to do. In fact, I had so little idea what to do. My first job right out of college was working at an ice cream store. That gives you a good idea. You know, I'm working at this ice cream store scooping ice cream and just kind of biding my time, not really knowing what to do. And then I got lucky. I was living in Boston and a friend of mine who was my, had been my bass player in my college band uh, called me. He'd been living in New York City and he called me. He'd been looking at the Musicians Wanted section of the uh, the Village Voice back when that's how people found out about stuff like that. And he said, hey, there's this band that he knew I liked that I think they're looking for a guitar player. And I'm like, no, you're, you're kidding me. 
The ad was a bit cryptic because it said, you know, New York, you know, noise, garage, psychedelic, whatever, punk band looking for guitarist. Influences, Alice Donut. And Alice Donut was the band I really liked. They had two albums and I'd seen them a bunch and I thought they were amazing. I loved them. And I was a big fan, actually. And so I was like, if this is the band, like, I have to, <laughs> somehow I have to get in this band. I called them up and I chatted with the guy for a minute. And at the end, I was like, so are you Alice Donut? He paused for a long time. And then finally he's like, yes. <laughs> I was inside, I jumped for joy. You know, I didn't want to betray my, my happiness too much, you know. Yeah, so I went and auditioned. And I learned all their songs inside out. I knew I knew the songs better than they did, I think. And they're like, oh, great, you know some of our songs. Like, name a song. So I, I just named like what I thought the, was the hardest one, just it really impressed them. And then um, they were like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Do you know any other of our songs? I'm like, yeah, I know another. And then it, it just went until it got to maybe the fourth song. They're like, well, you just keep naming them and we'll keep playing them. And then it got to a song where they didn't, they couldn't remember the song. And I was like, yeah, it goes like this. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, we don't really play that one. Yeah, and I had to wait a few weeks to find, you know, because they're auditioning people and they were about to do their first European tour. You know, sure enough, they told me, yeah, we, we want you. And I think it was because I was so prepared. Like, I could go on tour the next day if they wanted. And so I joined that band, Alice Donut, and I played with them for the next five years. I mean, it was like um, a total whirlwind. Those five years felt like 20 years. It was so busy. So I did that. That was my life for, for five years. After those five years, I, I think I just, I feel like I just burned out on it, actually, like all the touring. And like, I was technically homeless, I think, for a lot of that time. I didn't really have a, a home, a set home. I would just stay various places. I didn't realize I was homeless, but I think that's the term people use for that when you don't really live anywhere. So that was difficult for me. I don't know. I, I just had a lot of other music I kind of wanted to try to, to make. and. Um, I decided to move to San Francisco from New York City, just kind of on a leap. So then I went through this really strange and difficult metamorphosis because for the previous five years, I had been living sort of my dream and completely self-directed uh, in a kind of a prolonged state of adolescence being in this weird, freaky rock band, right? Never had to deal with the world on the world's terms. I dealt with it completely on my own terms. So it was a huge shock when I actually had to get a job job again. I, I can't overemphasize how weird that was because I don't think anyone understood me. I felt like I couldn't relate to people like in offices or just workaday people. It was like a whole different mental software that was in people's mind. Like it, was, it took me years actually and part of it is still, I mean, it's almost like I never quite got with that program. Honestly, I think that's partly why I chose the field of work that I'm in now, which is just very, finally, I am in private practice. My life is, again, very self-directed on my own terms, doing what I want to do. And again, that might be going back to, you know, me just being an only child and just being used to sort of doing everything myself. I started taking temp jobs in San Francisco that you could make a whole kind of sitcom out of my life in these temp jobs, just how comically atrocious some of them were. I was getting to the point where I was like just about out of money. I was still getting some royalty checks from musician 
times, but those were kind of dwindling down and it really got time where it's like, okay, I got to get like a real job, job, job. I told these temp agencies, like, I'll do anything except law and insurance. I just got this idea in my head from the temp jobs that like, I don't want anything to do with that stuff. I got so desperate that like, well, we don't have anything, but we do have this law office that needs somebody. I basically just had to take it. And I went in and it was totally cool. So I ended up working there and really enjoying it. And because I was probably a little brighter than the average like temp employee, they, they started putting me to work as a paralegal and like had me do things. And I had a college degree, you know, whatever. But yeah, and then I just became kind of a paralegal for 10 years in Oakland, California. And I loved it. I finally got to this point in my life where I began to think like, there's got to be more. I'm spending eight hours a day doing a thing that, you know, I, I don't really have any personal investment in except for just getting a paycheck so that I can do more music. And I began to really think that I wanted to be spending those eight hours doing something that had more meaning to me. And it was a painful process for me because like, I really didn't want to go back to graduate school. I was terrified of school. I had some really bad experiences with school and I, I had also an anxiety disorder, like panic attacks and stuff. And it was very related to school and being in a classroom. I was terrified of setting foot in a classroom again. That really held me back actually. I know it sounds kind of weird, but it held me back from, from getting on with my life for a long time. But finally I just hit this wall in my head and I was like, I've got to, I just have to do the hard thing. I ended up moving to Portland, Oregon, not so much with the idea of like, I am definitely going to go back to school and do something, or I know what I'm going to do, because I didn't know what I was going to do. But I knew that I had to do something different than I was doing. And having visited Portland, I realized like, whatever I'm going to do with my life, I want to do it here. So I just moved here, kind of knowing like, I got to reinvent my life somehow. I did some hard, hard thinking. It was very difficult. I felt, almost felt like I, um, I molted or something. It was like, I, it was when the movie The Social Network came out. And I went to a theater to see that. And basically, like, I had some kind of a weird breakdown when I walked out of the theater. And I just started sobbing. And I was just like, I think that movie just kind of shifted something in my mind. And, and that was October 30th, 2010. Between the, October 30th, October 31st and November 1st, I went through this. I was like out of my mind. I wasn't eating or sleeping. I was just in a whole different crazed state. Just like, I have to do something. I must change. And I don't know what, what it's going to be. At the end of that, I, I decided, okay, I just made the decision. Like, whatever, better, worse, whatever. Yeah, I'm going to be a therapist. I'm going to do it. I, it's an idea I had in my mind for quite a long time. And honestly, for the previous like 10, 15 years, that was the best idea I'd come up with. I had such wonderful experiences with therapists myself, just being a client, and it had helped me so much when I was in college. And I was, I was having some mental health struggles. Like I was having some really obsessive, intrusive thoughts um, that were really affecting me emotionally in a really difficult way. And so I sought out a therapist. And the woman that I went to, I can't imagine somebody more perfect. She was just this cool older woman who just had this like just really nice gentle touch and just was just so helpful and, and she gave me this sort of homework assignment that set me on the path to sort of curing myself 
I just thought, what a cool job. You just give, you just tell somebody, hey, try this, and then it can change their life, like in a really positive way. And ever since that happened, I thought, that's a cool job. And it suits me personally, because I like that kind of intense one-on-one -on -one conversation. I don't shy away from talking about deep issues, and I want to do something valuable. It just seemed to be kind of perfect, or the best thing I could think of. Once I made the decision, I went to work on figuring out like how I would do that. And I just, I knew it had to be in Portland. So that, you know, what are the grad schools in Portland? There's still only a few. So, okay. And how do I get in and what do they need? And when are the applications due? You know, da, 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 da. so it just, then it just became a logistical problem. Took the GRE, you know, did everything I needed to do. I got rejected from one school, but I got into the really kind of reputable one. Then my life was that for three years just did the school. Luckily, like the school helps transition you. They give you an externship, you know, for the last year of graduate school. So they just place you in a, you know, mental health agency or clinic somewhere. And so, yeah, I went to one and then you're just doing, then you're doing the work. And I would never been happier in my life because I was like, finally, I'm doing something that is in my wildest dreams. I, I didn't think I could maybe really do this. I always thought I'd be good at it, but I, I didn't think I could like do what I needed to do to actually to make it so that I could be doing this job. And here I was doing it and it was, I was, I can't tell you how happy I was. I was so, so happy. Luckily, when the externship ended and I graduated, the same place where I was working hired me. And then it's my job. And now I'm a professional marriage and family therapist. If you look at a therapist's website or something, or you go to the Psychology Today website and see the therapist profile, you see a list of like maybe a dozens of specialties like anxiety, depression, PTSD, you know, OCD, whatever, you know, all the things. And then all these different, what are called therapeutic models, which are models that you learn in graduate school of, you know, different schools of thought on how to treat or approach uh, various mental health problems. Some are more popular and well-known. Many people have heard of like CBT, which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. They're mostly acronyms, you know, CBT, DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, EFT, Emotion Focused Therapy, Narrative Therapy, Strategic Family Therapy, Bowenian or Intergenerational. There, there are many, many of these different ones. So how do therapists go about you know, finding which, which one or ones of these things they want to use. For me, I learned all these, uh, you know, many of these models when I was in graduate school. And basically, it was, it's just like left to us, like whatever, you know, whatever you just try different ones out. You know, if one is intriguing to you, just try it, learn it. And that's what you're kind of allowed your, your internship experiences is spent doing, you know, just, yeah, I think I might, I might want to try doing CBT or I might want to try this or that. The one I kind of started out on was SFBT, which is solution-focused brief therapy. Part of the reason I chose that was because there's this guy named Michael Lambert who did a, a meta-study, which is a study of other studies, research studies trying to determine the efficacy of different models. He was seeing what are the common factors in all these models that actually help clients change and, and overcome mental health struggles. And he actually found there were certain common factors the biggest one of which is just simply the therapeutic relationship. Do you like the therapist? Do you feel like they understand you? Can they joke with you? Do they get your particular, do they get you? Just that, that alone was like more important than any model you'll ever use, right? And when I learned that, I was like, 
why are we in grad school? I mean, we're in grad school to learn the 15% of Lambert's pie chart that says the model is important, but you need the model <laughs> to guide you what you do when you're doing therapy. There are different types of psychotherapists and graduate training programs are organized accordingly. So, you know, like licensed professional counselor or an LPC, LCSW, which is licensed clinical social worker. And then there's marriage and family therapists. Those each get trained somewhat differently. Like for me as a marriage and family therapist, my training was more in family systems and, and couples. An LPC, licensed professional counselor, would learn more about psychodynamic therapies or just, you know, one-on-one -on -one individual therapies and doing more sort of individual depth work, perhaps. And then licensed clinical social workers, you know, would be more about learning greater systems of support in the world, you know, with housing and food and, you know, just sort of things like that. So depending which of those programs you pick, you're going to get a slightly different training and a, a different set of therapy models will be presented to you. And then the other big thing that helps clients get better, it's called extra therapeutic factors, which simply means nothing to do with anything the therapist does to help the client. It's all <laughs> things the client would do anyway on their own, right? It's just the client's own strengths and resiliencies and traits and things like that. They, they, they can figure it out on their own, but the therapist maybe can help guide them a little bit. Knowing that, and just being a kind of a fan of expediency and just trying to <laughs> do the simplest thing and parsimony, I picked a model that was pretty simple and like very simple and totally positive. It's not like psychoanalysis where you look into the person's past and what are you repressing and what are you, you know, all these, it's not like that. It's, it's just very present and forward facing. So, and also just very solution focused. It's basically like, you know, what are you already doing to help the problem? Maybe you're already doing some things that help a little bit when the problem isn't quite so bad. You know, what are you doing? when it's not as bad, they're tailored custom therapies based on like whatever you're into. If you might be into gardening, okay, let's talk about gardening a lot. And maybe we find something in there or talk about whatever it may be that's um, something, an area in your life where it could lead to a solution to whatever it is you're, you're coming in to get help with. Based on my experience and work with the clients, I quickly realized that one of the main things going on that I didn't really learn in my program because I was in the, a marriage and family therapy program, which focused mostly on family systems. And it's almost like a cybernetics model of like, you know, input and how things affect each other in cycles and patterns and things like that. We didn't really learn much about treating trauma, but I quickly came to see that like everyone is suffering from trauma. Like most of the people I was seeing had some severe trauma in their lives um, that was really impacting them in, in the present moment. And I hadn't really been trained in that so much. So that motivated me to learn more about that, you know, treating trauma. So, so I just basically educated myself from that point on some of the things that I thought would be helpful to what I was seeing in the real world with clients. Clients come in with all kinds of different things, you know, looking for help with all kinds of different things. But one of the first things I was struck by when I started working as a therapist was the commonality of a lot of the problems. I mean, there will be a lot of the same issues because, I mean, as humans, we all end up kind of going through a lot of the same stuff, you know, and a lot of those things can just be related to life transitions, entering from childhood to adolescence, adolescence itself, marriage divorce, 
death, uh, grief. These things are all human experiences, you know, that most of us have. So those present a lot of common things that people come in with just by virtue of being a human being. And then like, you know, family conflicts, couple conflicts, ubiquitous, right? So, I mean, a lot of that. I mean, and every once in a while, they, there can be unique things, but often I, often I find they are related to trauma, as I kind of mentioned earlier. A lot of people who have been diagnosed with like bipolar disorder or anxiety or depression or OCD or certain things, a lot of those, those diagnoses actually stem from trauma of some kind. There's something called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And that's currently in its fifth edition. Every edition, they revise all the, <laughs> all the definitions of all these things, sometimes quite dramatically, which makes you wonder, like, okay, uh, <laughs> how much do we actually really know about this stuff? But that's actually kind of true for what's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is now the, you know, that's the sort of diagnosis that people think of when they think of trauma. Um, but even the DSM's diagnosis of that, like the criteria that the DSM lists, I, I, a lot of people think are inadequate currently, that trauma has not been properly defined. So generally, people come in with a lot of the same things. And um, one thing I like to do is let people know that, you know, you're, you're not unique. Because I, I think a lot of people have a lot of stigma around seeking mental health or like, what's wrong with me? Oh, there's something I'm bad and wrong. There's something faulty with me. No, no, there's nothing wrong with you you are simply responding to some difficult circumstances, right? And so I like to just off the bat, just let people know that. The more challenging parts of working as a therapist are with, um, I think when working with groups of people, either couples or families, where, where complex trauma is involved, um, because complex trauma, it can make, Interaction's kind of volatile and, and hard to, to keep calm, you know, because I like to keep everyone as calm as I can. I think the best work happens when people are in a calm state of mind. And if I, I notice people, you know, getting agitated or upset or act emotionally activated, I'll just pause and I'll do some, you know, let's do some deep breathing. Let's do something to activate our parasympathetic nervous system, get us calm. So that can be a bit difficult at times. Um, especially when working with family patterns where there are triggers, I call triggers, like somebody does or says something or rolls their eyes or, you know, and, and you instantly go from like calm to, to uh, your fight, flight, freeze response almost instantly, you know, because that's the amygdala part of the brain. It's the, it's the alarm system. That thing is so much faster than what we think of as our brain, like the front part of our brain is so slow. The neocortex is so slow compared to the, like the old brain, what some people call the reptile brain. So in, if I'm working with clients and, and that gets activated, <laughs> then I have to really go to work because I'm dealing with family systems, interaction patterns, right? But then if an individual gets activated, it's almost like a, a little brush fire, you know, that I have to put that out first before we can walk across that field again. So I have to stay very connected to the client's experience, very connected. And I have to respond very quickly sometimes and decisively sometimes. It's 
at least as common for therapists to be in therapy themselves as it is for the general population to be in therapy. Because, you know, therapists are people too. Working as a therapist can be stressful at times. And yeah, sometimes therapists do seek their own therapy just to deal with that job stress, right? Um, just as like anybody might have some job stress and, and get therapy to help with that. Or, you know, and therapists, again, therapists are people too. Therapists go through traumatic events or, or want to do self-work or whatever it may be. Our healthcare system in the United States has a lot to be desired. Often, you know, it's really insurance companies that can make it difficult, I think, because, you know, therapists themselves just having to interface with insurance companies can be problematic in some ways, you know, just having to justify certain things or, you know, the same way like medical doctors have those, those issues. But yeah, as far as access to care, I think our whole country is kind of not really set up to do that in an equitable way. We have Medicaid, which can be accessed, and I think people can get access to mental health care through that. But it's kind of, it, it's a difficult system to navigate, I think, uh, for a lot of people. And, and also I think about, I live in Portland, Oregon, which is a very white area and Oregon in general. And I, I think people of color have a particularly difficult time finding therapists of color who feel like they can relate to, you know, their experience a little more readily. You know, that can be an issue. Getting access to affordable care can be difficult because if you don't have insurance through your employer, it's hard. We don't live in like Europe. So it's, it's not like you can just get any kind of care you want easily. People do have a, the public has a perception about who therapists are, what they do, you know, what that job is like. And they're portrayed in, you know, the media, like TV shows and movies and stuff like that. And I see it too, because sometimes people come to me with these preconceptions and they'll tell me, you know, and I have to kind of explain, no, it's not really like that. But I think people tend to think of therapists as kind of like, often portrayed as like these weird, like inscrutable people who keep all their ideas and thoughts to themselves and don't share it with the client. And they sort of keep all these secret, like negative thoughts about the client. And I also think that like people think therapists have all the answers. Like we just know, we just know what you need to do. Just tell me what to do. I get that a lot. Just what do I do? That's generally a misconception. I don't think therapists can just tell you, we can't just tell you what to do. We can work with you sort of collaboratively and think kind of creatively to think of things that you might try. I do assign homework sometimes like maybe try this, maybe try, you know, journal about this or whatever, you know, different things. We can provide suggestions, but often I find if I come in with a plan, it doesn't work. You know, people think therapists know every, have all the answers just off the bat before that you even walk in the door, we can just tell you what to do. And I don't think that's true. I think we need to learn about you, understand you as a person. And a lot of times, it's the relationship that develops between the client and the therapist in that process of learning about the, the client and the client having the courage to self-disclose about some things that might be scary to talk about. That can be very healing and very therapeutic. The process of therapy is, a, is really a process. It's not just like the therapist coming and saying, yes, do these nine, these nine secret magic trick things and you'll be better. You know, it, it, it's kind of a, it's a process. I think if there's like one big sort of life lesson that I've learned from doing this work, it is that, you know, we're all in, it sounds a little cheesy, but we're all in this together. 
therapists struggle with issues just the way clients struggle with issues. Sometimes I have inspired clients greatly, and sometimes clients have inspired me greatly and help, honestly helped me a lot. I have gained a lot from seeing clients work to overcome their struggles. Like, that's very inspiring to me. I, I'm often very moved by what I see clients doing in sessions or, or just in their lives. My experience doing this work has amplified something that I already had, but, but something that's just meaningful, which is just my experience of the human condition, basically. It's like, we're all struggling, you know, we're all striving to be happy, to have happy lives, and, you know, struggle with age-old questions of death and life and meaning. And we're all doing it together. In, in that aspect, there's no difference between me and the client. And so I think in doing this work, it, it has helped me stay grounded in those kind of existential questions. And uh, I appreciate that. I like that. I remember when I was in high school, my high school girlfriend was, told me one day, you're an existentialist. <laughs> like, I didn't even know what that meant at the time, but like now I look, I'm like, yeah, I guess I kind of am. Life is inherently absurd, you know, but you just, you, you create your own meaning out of it. You just, you make whatever meaning you can. So I think doing this work has, has helped me um, just stay, yeah, like stay grounded in, in that awareness of, of the human condition. So another thing that's important for therapists to be mindful of and, and address is, is just taking good care of ourselves. Like we really have to do that because it, I always think of that metaphor of like, when you fly on an airplane and they, you know, they, when they're doing the demonstration, like when they, if an oxygen mask should fall, you know, place it on your nose and mouth before you assist, you know, your children or whatever. And it, for, when I first heard that, I was like, that's crazy. Help your kids first. Right. But the reason they have you do that is because you need to take care of yourself and make sure you can function and you don't pass out so that you can help your children, the people who need the help. So the same thing applies with therapists and, and other helping professionals, I think too. But yeah, we have to take good care of ourselves and we have to be mindful of that and pay attention to that and do what we need to do. And for everyone, it's different. For me, I love to go fishing. It's very relaxing for me, you know, getting some physical exercise, getting outdoors, just the things that most people know, you know, are good. Playing music, you know, for me, playing some music is, is something that really keeps me level and calm and happy and, and make a special point to do those things, which is kind of a cool perk of the job. I was like, sorry, I, I got to do some self-care. You know, it's for my job. <laughs> it's like, oh, darn, I have to go fishing, you know, so I can maintain my equilibrium, you know. So it's, it's actually kind of a nice thing about this kind of work in a strange way. <laughs> so I've been doing this about seven years now, and um, I'm still happy doing it. I enjoy it very much. I don't feel like I'm burning out. So I, I can see myself continuing to do this for the rest of my working life. I always imagined this would be a good job to grow old doing, because you're basically just sitting in a chair talking to people. I could do that for a long time, you know what I mean? I think it's it sh should be okay. Mm -hmm.